Hello everyone, it's March 24th, 2020. I hope everyone is keeping occupied as we hunker down for who knows how long to ride this thing out. In the meantime, we can at least talk about rockets. For example, the Artemis 1 Orion is all done with testing. Progress is happening, let's talk about it, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 253 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So week two of uh, quarantine. How are you guys doing? Well, well, let's let's be Hang clear. It it's there. not quarantine. I know. Social distancing. Well, I just I, I want to. I think it's I think it's good to be clear because there is a step beyond this. Um, oh yeah. And also, you know, quarantine isn't very effective when compared to like willing cooperation. But, uh, you know, all of California is now in shelter in place and actually so is Illinois. I don't think anybody else is though. But yeah, I'm, a, I'm officially not allowed to leave the house if I don't have to. But it's actually, it's been really cool. All of my neighbors are at home. There are fewer cars zipping through our neighborhood. And when people are outside, they look super happy and everybody's taking walks. And Corey and I, my girlfriend and I went on a walk yesterday and there were a lot of people sitting out on their porches and there were a lot of people in their backyards barbecuing and there was music playing everywhere. And like, honestly, like, I understand this is, this is an unusual time and it's, you know, not a, not a happy time, but there are, you know, some nice things happening and it, you know, it kind of feels like when you see videos of like uh, New York City during that big blackout that they had in like the the 80s or 90s. And, you know, there was just everybody was was playing, you know, instruments at their windows and singing with it. And just <laughs> mm. like the camaraderie uh, feels real. And I, I'm really lucky to live in a neighborhood where, you know, pretty much everybody around me by virtue of living in this neighborhood is self-selected to um, have income security. And I know that there are probably a lot of neighborhoods where people aren't nearly this, this cheerful, but for, for me, this has been actually pretty nice. You know, there, there have been some, uh, some nice parts to it. I agree with you. And I think I'm beginning to sort of feel that a little bit more, but I was just, frankly, at first, you know, like my anxiety can run away with me, you know, and I started to get like very worried about yeah. I'm calming down now. Like I'm getting a little bit better, you know, but like at first I was kind of panicking a bit, you know, because I don't like the idea of a pandemic, yeah. frankly. I mean, I'm, I'm sure no one does, but yep. it's a very scary prospect. So, but yeah, I'm yeah. learning to live with it and I'm adapting. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say there's, I, I worry that there's three phases to it. There's the phase when this is very new and scary. And then Right now, I feel like, yeah, I'm starting to get a little more used to not hanging out with anybody face-to-face. -face. I mean, I'm, that's just what I'm choosing to do right. rather than hang out right. and maintain a six-foot perimeter or whatever. But I worry that this is going to go on for a while, and I think this is not going to be sustainable yep. for as long as it probably needs to. And that's what has me anxious. Um, not now, not even the next three weeks, but like a couple months from now, I just don't know what's going to happen. And that un that's what makes yep. me un uneasy. Yeah, that's that's why we need everybody on board. We need to power through this now because otherwise it's going to run away from us. I agree. Yeah, that's why everyone should just stay home, like you said. You know, I mean, like that's not the order in all states. Um, and of course, that's not how it is across the world. But if you can, I just think it's I think that you should just do the responsible thing and stay home and do your civic duty, you know, like help everyone else out. And then we can knock it out in like three weeks if we just didn't go anywhere. But well, and and what's crazy to me is that uh, Washington, which has the, the most deaths right now, Washington doesn't have a shelter in place rule. And a lot of people from accounts that I've heard, a lot of people in Washington are just not treating this seriously. And it's like, well, you know, you, you 
you guys, you're, yeah. you're the you're the hot spot in the U.S. right mm-hmm. now. Like, come on. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I think it's actually I, New York. I but... think uh, New York jumped yeah. ahead over the last couple of days, even oh, in did. terms okay. of uh, deaths, okay. unfortunately. But I mean, it's such a fluid situation. I mean, it's kind of yeah. in the morning. What you learn in the morning is out of date by the afternoon. So uh, there's a bunch of data put out by John Hopkins uh, on ArcGIS. Um, which is just consistently one of the best data visualization sites. There might be some incessant checking <laughs> of the website at my house. Oh, what What is this? Sorry, I'm not familiar with uh, ArcGIS. It's a data visualization site. And so I don't, I don't know if they actually do any of their own data collection. They might, but they also host a lot of other people's data. Well, that's good to just kind of stay on top of things, see what's happening, but try to otherwise just do your best. So in some space news, uh, OneWeb is apparently planning to file for bankruptcy, or it has, or... From the phrasing I've seen is they, they floated it. Yeah. Yeah, and they just launched it a couple of days ago, so that's kind of mm-hmm. interesting. So they're still launching satellites, but they're also considering bankruptcy, so... And this plan definitely came out, or this this news about them planning bankruptcy came out before the launch, and that's why, right, seeing the little yeah. notifications on my phone, seeing OneWeb launch, you know, in 24 hours, it's like, oh... Okay, but I guess, I mean, while the, they're still waiting for the cards to fall, might as well launch them, I guess. I don't know. I'm not a business person. <laughs> it's funny that this this news comes out the same week that, that SpaceX gets their FCC license for their ground terminals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we said this on the show, but the ground terminals is really the the killer app, right? Like that that's the linchpin. Mm. If you if you have a good ground terminal, you're okay. But if you don't, you can launch as many satellites as you want and it's not gonna be as impactful. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see. Going back to Artemis 1 once again, the Orion spacecraft tests have been completed at uh, Glen Plumbrook Station. Glen, Glen's Plumbrook? How do you say that? Glen's Plumbrook? Yeah, so so this is happening at NASA's Glen Research Center, but it's specifically at their Plumbrook Station. That's right. Yeah, which is, you know, down, down the road. I think it's probably like, you know, 45 minutes away or something. Yeah, and that's located in Sandusky, Ohio. Okay. Try and say Glen Plumbrook three times fast. Glen Plumbrook. That's hard to say. Plumbrook. Glen- I, I love no, Plumbrook. No, no, no. It's a great Not name. Plumbrook. Oh, Glen Plumbrook. Glen's, Glen's Plumbrook. <laughs> Glen, Glen's Plumbrook. Plumbrook. Glenn's <laughs> oh, I see. It's the L. It's the L to the R that's that the... really gets you. Okay, that's like a free flea spray. So, uh, as you know, as these three SLS naysayers um, <laughs> uh, have been going on about how SLS will never fly, um, Artemis, uh, the the Artemis One Orion has finished testing at Plumbrook. So what they did there was uh, thermal vacuum testing, which um, returned unsurprising results. And then they also did electromagnetic testing. Um, and that took 13 days instead of the eight days that they expected. So, uh, you know, about one, 1. 1.5 times as long uh, as expected. Um, they said that they learned some things, but nothing jumped out at us. There won't be any uh, modifications to the design or anything. I think they probably just... Uh, had some characterizations that they didn't quite expect, or maybe, you know, they had a couple of options that they narrowed down. So Orion is still sitting at Plumbrook. It will ship to KSC on March 23rd. Uh, Yeah. uh, Emery in the chat says EMI EMC testing is always black magic and super time consuming. And yeah, from everything I've never, obviously I've never done it, but from everything I've heard, that's absolutely true. Them, uh, them photons are, are sneaky bastards. 
So it will ship to KSC on March 23rd. Um, and when it does, it'll do some additional testing. Uh, it will do separate vacuum and thermal tests, right? Not the thermal vacuum testing that was done at, at Plumbrook. What is it? The thermal tests will be done uh, separately and the vacuum test will be done integrated with the, the crew and the service modules. And then once that's done, uh, Lockheed will go ahead and remove the testing instrumentation and I believe they're actually going to be doing the fairing integration. And then at that point, Lockheed will be done working on the vehicle. They'll hand it off to Jacobs and Jacobs will kind of do the, the final mile. Uh, they will fuel the spacecraft and integrate it with SLS and, and do all the launch preparations. So I'm assuming they'll also do cargo uh, loading, uh, all those last little things. So, you know, to make sure the show is long enough, I thought it'd be fun to go back over what Artemis 1 is going to look like as a mission. Because uh, as I was thinking about it, I wasn't 100% sure uh, each of the each of the milestones that they were going for. And I actually learned some fun information about some ride-along satellites. Um, so we can talk about those. So uh, Artemis 1 was originally called EM-1, Exploration Mission 1. So if you have uh, knowledge in your head about EM-1, you can go ahead and just apply it to Artemis-1. It sounds like they're going to do at least one orbit in LEO. Um, it's really hard to tell. The graphics all show um, a partial orbit before TLI, translunar injection. But looking at the timing, it, it sounds like it, it's more likely to be at least one orbit. You know, they're going to do some checkout tasks in orbit. They're also going to deploy the solar panels. So I know that they probably want to get out of orbit as quick as possible just for energy reasons, but I think they're going to do at least one orbit. We'll we'll see. If anybody knows, let, let me know, because I wasn't able to figure so, this out. I did a little bit of... So if if they deploy the solar panels while still in, I don't know if it's low Earth orbit, but in some kind of a transfer orbit, but they haven't transferred just yet, right? Which means that they have to relight the booster. What do you do with the solar panels? Because I imagine that that would impart enough thrust to maybe like not snap them off but yes yeah i i actually have a bullet point later on to talk about that um and i want to talk about that when when we ah. get closer to the moon but okay. yes that's an that's an excellent question so the uh they are gonna launch into a low earth orbit they're not going into medium remember you the oberth effect is important and their uh their tli burn will take 20 minutes which um, it's, it's crazy because like in Kerbal Space Program, you know, these burns take a minute or two minutes mm -hmm. maybe. Um, but we're talking about having that engine burning for 20 minutes. And then, uh, ICPS will separate two hours after launch. And that's kind of where I'm thinking that there's going to be more than one orbit. Um, cause I imagine they're going to, uh, want to separate ICPS fairly quickly after TLI. ICPS stands for Interim Cryogenic Propulsion Stage. We'll have a correction burn later in the show for last week. And then uh, once ICPS uh, has done the TLI, they'll, they'll do a couple of additional um, checkout tasks, and then they'll separate. And then once ICPS, ICPS is separated, it actually has 13 CubeSat ride-alongs. Uh, they're all 6U configurations. Some of them will deploy shortly after separation, um, some of them will deploy, I believe, halfway to the moon, and then some will deploy closer to the moon. But it's interesting to point out that ICPS, I don't believe it's planning on any additional burns after TLI. So TLI will put it into um, a moon rendezvous, or I guess a, a moon flyby that will then slingshot it into heliocentric orbit. And what's really cool about that is if it's got CubeSats going along, all those CubeSats are initially on a path to get 
uh, out into heliocentric orbit. Um, most of them will not. Most of them will do breaking burns around the moon. And as far as I, I, I did a quick search, so don't you know, don't put too much stock in this. But I believe it's only uh, three will be going into uh, solar orbit, and I'll talk about those at the end because they're all pretty cool. Um, so just a couple of highlights for me. Argo Moon uh, will be imaging ICPS, um, doing some close, what's it called? Uh, like some, some close formation flying, basically. Uh, BioSentinel has some yeast on board uh, that they'll be doing, I think, radiation experiments on. Equilus, E-Q-U-U-L-E-U-S, Equilus. I guess because it's uh, the two U's say, it, to me, says, uh, pronounced like I'm Latin, so e Equalus. Um, we'll do uh, low thrust maneuvers with a steam engine. Um, and so what's really cool is the, the water that they have on board will initially be heated by waste heat from the communication system before it goes into the actual uh, heater to, to get up to um, steam temperature. So a nice little uh, a nice little freebie use of of some waste heat, and that seems like kind of an interesting thermal system to manage. There are going to be two ice observation satellites, uh, including um, Ice Cube and Lunar Flashlight, uh, both of which we heard about at um, uh, IAU uh, last year. Um, and then there's also a satellite looking for hydrogen at the poles. And then, uh, oh, I'm sorry, there, there are at least, at least four going into a heliocentric orbit. Let me hmm. talk about my favorite one first. It's called Near Earth Asteroid Scout. It's planning on going to a near Earth object. Um, they have one picked out, but, you know, we'll, we'll see if, if the, the launch window slips or moves, you know, they, they may have to retarget, but it has a solar sail. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to go visit a NEO with a solar sail. And y'all know how much I love mm -hmm. solar sails. And I think everybody who listens to the show knows how hard I work to be really excited about uh, Planetary Society uh, light sail missions, even though they really haven't done that much. And so um, I'm really hoping that Near Earth Asteroid Scout is going to be able to put its solar sail to the first real practical use of a solar sail in human history. That's um, so cool. Yeah, isn't that awesome? So then the other three satellites that are also going into uh, sun-centric orbit are all three, uh, the, the three winners of the Cube Quest challenge uh, from, I think, like two or three years ago. One is demonstrating water electrolysis propulsion. So not steam propulsion, but breaking the water down into hydrogen and oxygen and then, and then burning it. One, uh, oh, two are demonstrating long-distance communication. And one of those long-distance communication sats also has a hybrid ion thruster, which I think will be a really, really cool tech demo. Um, and then... Um, uh, Emery Stagmer in the chat has got a really nice uh, example to help you visualize what a, a 6U cube sat. So um, remember, it, each unit is a 10 centimeter cube. So a 6U cube sat is 10 by 20 by 30, um, which is roughly 4 by 8 by 12 inches, which is about the size of a really large box of cereal. So like one of the Costco boxes. <laughs> uh, no, Costco sells sells the cubic prism boxes, but this is, you know, flat. So once Orion has separated from the ICPS, it will capture into a parabolic orbit around the moon, 
And then once it gets to its apoapsis, um, it will circularize. I say circularize. I don't think it's actually an incredibly circular orbit, but it'll circularize into what's called a distant retrograde orbit, which we've talked about once or two. Basically means a high orbit that's going backwards, which makes sense if you are coming in from Earth, you want to pass in front of the moon, which puts you into a backwards orbit relative to the moon's rotation. But the moon doesn't rotate very quickly, so it doesn't really matter. And it will stay in the DRO for six days before returning to Earth. And to return to Earth, it lowers its periapsis and then does its trans-Earth injection burn uh, with uh, uh, the help of the Oberth effect. Um, these capture burns are called powered flybys. So some acronyms you might hear are when you are arriving at the moon, it's called the outbound powered flyby, so the OPF. And then coming back home is the RPF, the return powered flyby. And then uh, this is this is where that bullet point that I mentioned, David, was. Um, yeah, so the burns from Orion's main engine are strong enough to really put some forces on the solar panels and potentially uh, potentially damage them. Certainly, the thrust from the ICPS is enough to do that. Um, so uh, we talked about this on the show a while ago, but I I think it's really uh, fun that you forgot about this for a second, David, because. Um, it's a really, <laughs> I, I was going to talk about it anyway, but it's a really good mm -hmm. excuse to talk about it. So if you have solar panels that need to be rigid under thrust, you can either have them be fixed, uh, like Soyuz's where they, you have that nice long moment arm because the, f the long flat axis points out, but then the second, like the, the intermediate axis, the one where they are wide, so there's like length, width, and thickness. So the width um, on Soyuz's points uh, in line with the vehicle. So they're like bird's wings. Mm -hmm. But Orion's uh, are going to be able to articulate and rotate to point at the sun. And so um, because they don't have that nice long moment arm of the entire width being attached to the vehicle. What they've done is included a second uh, rotation axis. So they don't just swivel. Um, like your wrists doing jazz hands, but they also flap up and down um, like as if you're raising your hands above your head. And so um, before each burn, they can cant the solar panels upward, which reduces their moment arm, right? They don't stick out as far. And so the overall uh, force is placed on the hinge, that attachment point down at the um, at the skin of the uh, service module is is lessened because it's not supporting as you know quote unquote long uh, solar panel. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's clever. Yeah, and that neat. And they and they flap forward, not backward, which I think is probably just a, a propellant impingement uh, choice. Um, it, mm -hmm. it, you know, technically from a physics standpoint, you could go either way and it'd be the same, but they, they flap mm -hmm. forward. And so you said that we had talked about that before, cause I guess I'd forgotten. Yeah. I think we had, I think we had oh. talked about it in a, in a fairly theoretical sense back when they were first proposing these panels, because remember Orion was originally supposed to have the, the circular Cygnus yeah. fan, uh, solar panels and they changed um, to the European square panels. That's a good recap of Artemis 1. So there is a lot going on there and, you know, a lot of cool science besides the actual primary mission because I didn't mm. know about those other smaller satellites. I guess right. they just, you know, they don't get mentioned very often. Yeah, my my extent, the extent of my understanding was that, you know, and there will be a lot of CubeSats on board, but not like, you know, a friggin' 
solar sail mission to a near Earth asteroid. I mean, that just mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I know. Isn't that awesome? More cooler than just saying, you know, oh, it's got a cubesats. Yeah, and so there will be a link in the show notes to the Wikipedia page, and I've linked to the section on the secondary payloads, so you can read. Every, they they're all set. You know, they they're all uh, they're all selected, um, and so you can go and read up on each and every one instead of just the highlights that I read. Let's do three short and sweets. What is our first one, Dennis? First up, L3 Harris wins NASA contract for the LISA Observatory. A $20 million contract for the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, or LISA, Engineering Development Unit Telescope has been awarded to L3 Harris Corporation of Rochester, New York. The gravitational wave detector will consist of three telescopes in a heliocentric orbit that will use laser interferometry to measure any change in the space-time between them due to the passing of gravitational waves. While ESA heads the project, one of NASA's contributions will be designing the telescopes. Under this 36-month contract, L3 Harris will design, fabricate, and verify three different test model telescopes. Next up, Long March 7A is unsuccessful. The inaugural flight of the Long March 7A variant failed to place its secret payload into orbit on Monday. The Hydrolox upper stage is inherited from the Long March 3B, which the 7A is meant to replace. This failure to reach orbit could affect future launches of other variants depending on the nature of the anomaly. Though at this time, the only thing known is that the failure occurred after liftoff. Very specific. <laughs> yeah. Lastly, SpaceX launches DarkSat with lackluster results. I didn't mean that to be a pun, but I realize now that it is. Wow. I don't know if anyone gets that. Lackluster. Well, that's more of like an ironic pun, I guess. Lackluster results would be a good thing, um, but that's not what happens. So SpaceX's sixth Starlink launch included an experimental DarkSat satellite among the 60 total satellites. The DarkSat was designed to reduce reflectivity in response to concerns raised by the astronomical community. Portions of this satellite had been darkened to reduce brightness. Another idea that has been proposed is a sunshade that could cover highly reflective surfaces. And observations of the dark sat with a small telescope have noted a 55% reduction in brightness, which falls short of what many astronomers are seeking. So still not there quite yet. I guess they want total, they want total darkness. I don't know. Well, just, I mean, some of these things, you know, you could see very faint. So, I mean, a factor of two is probably not enough if some of these you can see naked eye in certain times. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And we have one correction from Jeff Snively. Snively? Not sure. I would say Snively. Yeah. Snively. Okay. Yeah, that is better than Snively. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this is in regards to something we just talked about, which is the ICPS, not the IUS. Yeah, yeah. L- last week I said IUS, inertial upper stage, instead of ICPS, interim cryogenic propulsion stage. And uh, yeah, sorry. I swear to God, we talked about it uh, before the show and we just forgot to actually make the change. But yeah, it, I think this is a really cool correction because, you know, on the one hand, it's like, it's like, uh, yeah, that was just a, you know, a typo. But what's really cool is Jeff Snively is actually a mission analysis engineer working on Orion for Lockheed. So, you know, if anybody's mm-hmm. going to correct us on acronym, I am very excited that it is somebody who actually works on the project. Yeah. But I got I said ICPS today, so that's okay. All right. Let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. All right, David, I'm going to take over from you for a sec here. The clue from last <laughs> week was McEwen's baby, and I said 2008 instead of 2006. My This Week in Spaceflight History document says 2006. I have no idea how I got the wrong date typed into last week's show notes. Very sorry. So the the Greek came up with a very uh, good <laughs> alternate 
Yeah, a fitting answer. Yeah. The unintended this week in spaceflight history. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, yeah, I guess technically we could we could totally swap it and and pretend like that didn't happen. But um how about we do the original this week in spaceflight history and then we'll talk about the Greeks alternately correct <laughs> event. Take it right. away, Dennis. Okay. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, so uh congratulations and um the intended this week uh in spaceflight history was uh was March 24th, 2006 at 8.36 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, uh, which is shared, uh, which is also Arizona's time since they don't do daylight savings as a little bit of commentary there. Uh, it was when HiRISE <laughs> took its first test image of Mars. Uh, images, I guess I should say. And so uh, it had previously taken some images en route uh, earlier in December of the previous year of the Jewel Box cluster. But this was the first test images of Mars uh, really seeing what looking at the Martian surface would uh, be like, although they were at a bit higher uh, altitude than their kind of science operations would take place. Because as you mentioned, right, with the previous uh, This Week in Spaceflight History, uh, MRO, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter on which HiRISE uh, is installed, had to do a lot of uh, months and months of aerobraking uh, to get down to a nice uh, low Martian orbit. So uh, HiRISE stands for the High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment, and it's a $40 million instrument built by Ball Aerospace and the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory. And the principal investigator is Alfred McEwen, who uh, is uh, McEwen's baby, thus is the reason for the clue. McEwen is the uh, PI of the Io Volcano Explorer right now, uh, which recently got kind of down-selected in the competition for uh, a new NASA mission. And so uh, he's otherwise, though, a really kind of badass uh, planetary scientist. He's a um, he was in the Peace Corps back in the 70s. He's been in Arizona, it seems like, his whole career. He got his bachelor's and master's from uh, the northern from northern Arizona University. Uh, so he was a lumberjack originally. And then he got his Ph.D. at the uh, Arizona State University. And since 1996, he's been at. LPL, the Lunar Planetary Laboratory at the University of Arizona. And so he's just kind of moved from a direct trajectory from northern Arizona to central Arizona to southern Arizona. And so uh, he's had many students who've gone on to have huge careers. He's had a lot of postdocs who've gone on to have huge careers. One of his postdocs is actually ZB Turtle, which is a name you might recognize as the PI of the Dragonfly mission to Titan, the uh, octocopter that'll be mm. heading there in the 2030s. Yeah, so McEwen's baby, I mean, he's done other great stuff. Uh, he was a co-I on, say, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Cassini uh, imaging team. But uh, yeah, his baby was HiRISE uh, and still is HiRISE. Sorry, I should say HiRISE is certainly still operational and taking mm -hmm. awesome images to this day. And so go check out uh, the, the website if you can. And so uh, just a little bit about HiRISE. It is a uh, half meter aperture uh, Cassegrain telescope, uh, which it makes it the largest telescope beyond low Earth orbit. Uh, which is pretty badass. And mm -hmm. that's why uh, Ben uh, graciously let me take over this uh, week in spaceflight history because he knows I love it because I just love the super <laughs> high-resolution images that you get of Mars. Um, those are mm -hmm. coming from high Gracious nothing. This is self-defense. <laughs> but it's fun. I love it. So um, because we talked a lot about MRO uh, last week, I wanted to focus a little more on the, the specs of high-rise in particular. And it's really interesting how this instrument is set Set up, including the telescope and the uh, the, te the detector and everything else, and so it's a uh, it's a it's got a focal ratio of 24, um, which is uh, right the ratio of the focal length of the telescope 
divided by the aperture size. And so that's another way of saying that the light travels 12 meters after it hits the primary until it reaches the detector. And yet because of them folding it, uh, they got fold mirrors within the spacecraft, the whole assembly is only uh, 1.6 meters long. So again, that's hmm. that's like that's 40 feet compacted to five feet. And so that's something that I always thought was amazing that, you know, a lot of uh, imaging satellites uh, have to kind of do this stuff because you can't have um, well, you can have something the size of Hubble up there, but you know it's non-trivial to do that, and so <laughs> it's really nice to go and compact things as much as possible. And so the um, it consists of uh, 14 CCDs or charged coupling devices, and this is what I think is the most interesting part of how the uh, uh, the mission does it, uh, or how the instrument takes its data. And so uh, these 14 CCDs uh, together make up the detector chip assembly. And so this is uh, how they're aligned. Each one of them is uh, 20, 2048 pixels, and um, they're elongated. And so you can imagine there's red sensitive CCDs, 10 of them, and they're arrayed along their long axis and staggered. So they're staggered that they, so they overlap 48 pixels at each end, but you've got these 10 arrays or these 10 uh, CCDs in a row. And so you've got these 10 uh, red sensitive CCDs uh, elongated. So it's a very long, uh, detector chip assembly. And then um, in front of the center CCDs, uh, leading them, you've got a pair of blue-green uh, sensitive CCDs that are staggered. And then behind uh, trailing, uh, you've got two uh, near-infrared sensitive CCDs. And so that's why down the center strip, and I'll talk a little bit about how it does its imaging, it does something called a push broom method. So it's got this mm -hmm. very elongated uh, setup, kind of like, you know, a broom. Uh, the brush at the end of a broom is very elongated. And just like you push it forward, right, as the spacecraft travels in one direction, it arrays, its uh, detector ship assembly is sets the width of the uh, swath that it's going to cover. And so the center of the swath can get the three, uh, the blue-green, the red, and the near-infrared channels all kind of imaging the same terrain. And so that's where you can get the color imaging down the center of the swath, whereas you get the red-sensitive imaging off at the edges. And so it's a pretty uh, cool method, and you can just do this as long as you want, technically, but uh, it's limited by how much data it can collect in one swath and that turns out to be about 28 gigabits and so once it's uh takes up that 28 um then it has to basically stop and then it can beam that data back to earth and uh to keep the jitter down right and have it as uh, stable pointing as possible it uh turns off the other instruments while it's uh doing one of these uh swaths and so uh to get a sense of the size and the resolution that we're looking at here it's got a one and a 1.14 degree by 0.18 degree field of view. So kind of like I mentioned, right, it's very elongated, but that 0.18 degree, you know, is getting swiped in the direction of the swath. And so that's why you get these very long images ultimately uh, that are released. And uh, what I would call the pixel scale, but I learned a new term. I, I think when it comes to planetary science imaging, they refer to what's called the ground sampling dimension. So in other words, what is the physical size per pixel that you're going to be getting on your CCD detectors. And uh, CCDs, if I, I don't think I mentioned, um, but if anybody isn't familiar, they're uh, charge couple devices. These are the uh, same type of uh, detectors that you have in your smartphones or digital cameras. And so um, the ground sampling dimension of high rise is 30 centimeters per pixel from about 300 kilometers, which is 
uh, it's kind of science uh, altitude, I guess. And so that means each pixel can pick up an object 30 centimeters in size, but to really resolve it, you need a handful of pixels. So it's more like it has like one meter resolution, which is still pretty remarkable. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about something that's, you know, one foot mm -hmm. uh, in size, essentially. Um, or sorry, a few feet in size uh, that can be resolved. And uh, to, you know, put it in uh, angular units, this is equivalent to one micro radian, where radian is the unit of like, the pure number pi, so 360 degrees is equal to two pi radians in a circle. And so we're talking about one millionth of a radian or one millionth of a two pi way around a circle. And uh, it has, you know, in addition to going with the highest resolution mode, it can also do what's called uh, time delay integration, as well as just kind of traditional pixel binning to increase the uh, amount of uh, signal to noise, to increase the amount of signal. Uh, at the cost of resolution. And uh, the TDI is an interesting, uh, this time delay integration is an interesting method. So because it's doing this push broom method and it's sweeping in the one direction, the channels in the lead, right? Because the way a CCD works is it builds up charge on those pixels before it reads out the charge. So that way you can integrate for kind of, you know, as long as you want, typically when it's a stationary image you're taking. So those leading rows, those pixels can take like read partial partially the charge that they're getting and then they can combine it with the next trailing uh, row of pixels because that's going to be sampling the same part of mars you know a fraction of a second later and then the next trailing row after that a fraction of a second later and so on and so you can do this to sort of bin row by row in that direction and so that's just another way of increasing your uh, noise it's kind of like just like a scanning imager essentially and so pretty cool stuff. Now that's about high rise itself, but the uh, image itself was taken, uh, as I mentioned, uh, during this, uh, at this very high orbit uh, before the aero braking was finished. And so it was at an altitude of 2,489 kilometers or 1,547 miles. So this was taken during 40 minutes of engineering test data. So they also have a context camera and a Mars color imager uh, on board. And so they kind of wanted to test out all these instruments. And uh, like I mentioned, right, uh, because it's got those 10 uh, CCDs lined up uh, side by side. And so that's kind of uh, what we're looking at here is essentially a mosaic of these uh, afterwards being processed. And you can see some artifacts where the one CCD uh, meets the other a little bit too. You can see a slight change in uh, shading on the image. Um, but they wanted to get like uh, certain uh, ground speeds and lighting conditions. So that's why they took this image at a high altitude and they only, in air quotes, only got eight feet per pixel, which was already about as good as anything else could do uh, imaging Mars at that point. And so uh, pretty badass. High rise is still going strong. Uh, it's covered a few percent of Mars so far, given that high angular resolution. So if you're, for example, looking at Google Mars, which is a lot of fun to play around with, uh, you're not really seeing uh, a lot of high rise images in there, uh, if at all, uh, because these are just really, really zooming in, but giving you a, a amazing picture. Some of the best pictures that you see of uh, Mars come from high-rise. And so um, its goals when it was launched uh, were first to uh, characterize the current climate and mechanisms of climate change on Mars. Uh, as we know, right, Mars had water in the past and it doesn't uh, have at least widespread water on the surface in liquid form now. And so exactly what happened uh, with the Martian atmosphere. 
And uh, determine uh, second goal was to determine the nature of complex layered terrain. Uh, being able to zoom in at such high resolution can certainly help there. Uh, identify water-related landforms. Search for sites showing evidence of aqueous or hydrothermal activity, which it has succeeded in. And uh, its fifth goal was to identify and characterize sites with high potential for landed science and sample return by future missions. So uh, among uh, achieving that goal, uh, for example, it imaged all boulders really large enough to constitute a serious hazard for landing spacecraft. And if you remember a few months ago, I think it was Starship uh, used high-rise imaging to identify mm -hmm. potential landing sites uh, when it wants to ultimately head to Mars. And so uh, high-rises uh, images, like the ones that really, really uh, enamored me to it, uh, it took an image of the Phoenix lander uh, when it reached Mars, and that was in 2008, I believe. And uh, that one was pretty cool because, I mean, you're seeing Phoenix coming down with the parachute. Uh, but the image that really has made high-rise my single favorite one, this might be one of my favorite astronomy images of all time, is high-rise imaging curiosity uh, before the sky crane was deployed or anything, but you can see the parachute and uh, curiosity uh, kind of still tucked in its capsule and everything. And the amount of detail is just staggering. Like you could see features on the parachute so clearly and beautifully. <laughs> and um, it also has some of the like the most iconic picture, I think, of a dust devil on the surface that's taken from a bird's eye view uh, comes from high rise. The recurring slope lineae where uh, these are these streaks. Uh, we actually talked briefly, David, you brought them up mm -hmm. uh, last week. Yeah. Um, yeah. These yeah, these streaks on Mars that could be uh, little bits of water uh, spilling out onto the surface. Um, these had been imaged uh, with high rise. And so such a cool instrument, a lot of fun to talk about. And yeah. Yeah. The images that it gives us of Mars don't even seem real to me. That's just, I mean, hmm. that would be the best way mm -hmm. to describe how nice this telescope is. Yeah, I mean, that's it, it seems like a different, a slightly different philosophy of putting like a really, I mean, like I said, it's the largest telescope beyond low Earth orbit. And so we're just putting a space telescope, but having it just being part of a, a Martian orbiter. Just wild stuff. All right. Thank you so much, Dennis. And I have a clue for next week. It's uh, next week in 1926. And then we have an audio clue this week because we were going to do an audio clue. But then I realized that I had the wrong date picked out for that. And we had <laughs> actually something we'd already done. Uh, so here's the audio clue. 1926. <laughs> so that is next week in 1926 and yeah you heard the clue so if you think you know what that's about give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck good luck everyone good luck everybody so we got uh we have several upcoming spaceflight events on march 26 we've got an atlas 5 in the 551 configuration taking the uh aehf6 satellite along with the tdo uh Two. The uh, AHF is the Advanced Extreme High Frequency System. Uh, this is the sixth and final satellite in that series. Um, these are communication satellites operated by the U.S. Air Force Space Command uh, and provide global survivable protected communications capabilities for strategic uh, such and such. And so the TDO is the uh, <laughs> something something warfighter something, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, riding along with it is the TDO two, which is the the name of the multi manifest uh, small satellite vehicle flying with AHF six, uh, which is going to carry multiple U.S. government payloads to provide. Uh, 
Uh, well, essentially to support space domain awareness through optical, cal optical calibration and satellite laser ranging. And so some support craft there. And uh, again, this is March 26th at 1857 UTC with a window from 1857 to 2057. And it will be launching out of Space Launch Complex 41 in the key. Great. Next on March 29th, we'll be flying an Electron. And I'm really sorry, but... Uh, there's no other way to pronounce the name of the mission, but don't stop me now. Um, and it is, <laughs> uh, it's, so it's, uh, it's carrying three payloads, um, for NRO. Uh, so those are going to be, uh, super secret. <laughs> That's all we can say. It's also flying the Andesite CubeSat for Boston University and the M2 Pathfinder satellite. Uh, which is an Australian satellite. I, I think that's it. Um, so that's flying on March 29th. Um, the window is from 0443 to 0633 UTC. And of course, that's flying out of New Zealand. All right. And then finally, uh, March 30th is the launch of a Falcon 9 with Salcom 1B. So yeah, that's just another Salcom satellite. This is the 1B satellite for Kone, um, which is Argentina's space agency. Uh, and it's the second of two Salcom satellites. These are a pair of Earth observation satellites meant to help with emergency responders and to monitor the environment. This was delayed from the fourth quarter of last year but is now going to launch hopefully on the 30th and so that was originally launching from Vandenberg but now is launching from Cape Canaveral so that's really interesting because generally you know it's you know kind of has to be one or the other but I guess in this case they can do either one so that's really cool so I guess that means that this is going to be one of those dog leg maneuver yeah because yeah, uh, I'm guessing that it was meant to be polar because it would have to be yeah so that launch time is at 2321 UTC so that's an instantaneous launch window so yeah probably a polar orbit for sure. So so not only is that SpaceX's first polar launch from Cape Canaveral, but it's actually the first polar launch out of Cape Canaveral at yeah. all since 1960. That's pretty neat. So yes, awesome. this is a new capability that they have. Yeah, because we, we talked about a couple shows back. Uh, it pretty much comes down to the size of the payload and you know how much extra delta V you have. Uh, and in this case, they can do that dog leg. And I'm assuming they can still land that first stage or I don't know if they're going to try to return it to launch site I don't believe so I think that they're going to put it down somewhere north of Cuba and like then Cuba. Yeah, right? yeah and then I think that the fairing has come down south of Cuba but the first stage is north of it it's something north. like that yeah I was going to say we, we should be grateful that the uh, that this kind of you know first polar launch from the Cape in you know half a century uh, is coming from a, a launch company that has the best production value <laughs> for their launches so <laughs> It really will be cool to watch. So it looks like they're actually going to land, yeah, back at LZ1. Oh, they are going to land. Okay, so wow. Actually, and Tim Dodd says it's unlikely that they're going to recover the fairings. Okie dokie. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. With that, let's uh, do over the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies guess what you can join our discord for free during social distancing so please do so we'd love to have you check out our twitter and reddit for links we're orbital podcasts on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com all right so that's it we will see you next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you